Okay, you can take your Bibles and turn with me, please. There's a gap there. Um, you can turn with me, please, in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Last time we were together, we touched just toward the end of our message upon the very important principle that's presented in 1 John 2, 2. In 1 John 2, 2, uh, this is one of those verses that holds a great deal of theological significance. Now, all of the Bible is important, but the Christian world has historically keyed in on certain verses which serve to express truth in a way that is poignant, that is succinct, and that is very clear. When we think of that, if we were to interact today, I'd hear John 3.16 among those verses. I would hear Romans 3.23 among those verses. I would hear Romans 6.23. I would hear Ephesians 2.8 and 9. I would hear James 4.6. I would hear 1 Peter 5.7. We would hear of these particular verses uh, that kind of sear themselves into our consciousness, that say things in a manner that is uniquely helpful or that gives us a unique clarity as it relates to various principles of the Word of God. And this is, 1 John 2, 2 is, in many ways, another one of those verses that serves to express an essential truth and aids us in our ability to orient ourselves properly to sound doctrine. These established foundational principles upon which all of our other understandings of doctrines are built. And as I said, 1 John 2, 2 is one of those foundational verses. Now, 1 John 2, 2, if you recall, says this, And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. As I mentioned last week, there are two distinctive areas where this helps us. The first area that this helps us is to orient ourselves properly to sound doctrine. The second area where this verse helps us is to orient ourselves properly to theology. And believe it or not, not all that happens in theology ends up being sound doctrine. When we study theology, the ideal is that we are studying the, the sound doctrine in theology. But theology is a broad study, and not everything within that broad study is, in fact, accurate. And it, of course, becomes... Best Theology is best used when it is sound doctrine. But today we're going to talk doctrine. Next week we're going to talk theology. And particularly next week, where we're going to go with this is we're going to talk about Reformed theology. And we're going to talk about this verse in relation to Reformed theology. And so if you uh, understand what, what that's talking about with Calvinism and such, that's where we're going to go next week. But for this week we're going to talk doctrine. So as we consider 1 John chapter 2, we find in it this very significant truth. This truth is that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. As I said, next week we'll consider that verse as it relates to um, theology. But this week we consider the importance of this verse as the foundation for how we understand the atoning work of Jesus Christ, for how we understand the nature of the gospel and our relationship to it. So we're going to talk doctrine. And in a sense, really, in a sense, all I'm going to do this evening is walk through the gospel. And I, I'm going to do this for a very particular reason. I know that most people, under the sound of my voice, know the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean we should never talk about the gospel. We need to hear the gospel. You need to hear it so that we can be reminded of the gospel because it enlivens our spirits. We also need to hear it because in hearing it, we're able to then articulate it better to others.
So I'm not apologetic for just walking through the gospel this evening, but uh, we are just going to walk through the gospel. And believe me, I believe this is the best way that I, can, uh, that, that, that I have at my disposal to present the significance of 1 John 2, 2 as it relates to the gospel. And the reason why I say I believe this is because I wrote this message five times before I finally got to a message that I was comfortable preaching. It was a chore to put this message together. And I think it's because initially I was overcomplicating it. Like literally, you know, I I write these messages and they're somewhere between 20 and 30 slides. And I got between slide 15 and slide 20 five times before I had something that I felt comfortable to be able to preach. And ironically, all of those other ones were significantly more in-depth and, and more intricate. And then it finally dawned on me, what I need here to articulate this is I, I need the gospel. I simply need the gospel. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk you through the gospel. And I'm going to show you where it is that 1 John 2, 2 fits into the gospel. And by doing that, I hope that you'll be able to see in some measure of clarity why it is 1 John 2, 2 is important and, and why even among circles which are of like faith and practice to ourselves, they don't fully necessarily assimilate 1 John 2, 2 in the way that I believe perhaps we ought to in relation to our thinking of the gospel, both as we present it and as we live under it. So let's walk through the gospel this evening. Point number one of the gospel. All men are sinners. The Bible makes this point quite plain. David writes in Psalm 14, verses 2 and 3, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. You have not done good. I have not done good. You do not understand. I do not understand. There is none that doeth good. Paul used this as the launching off point to his own explanation of this in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, where Paul writes this. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. We just read that, right? (laughs) That's what we just read there uh, in Psalm 14. That's where it comes from. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace Have they not known there is no fear of God before their eyes? And Paul sums all of this up in verse 23, saying, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, it isn't just that men are sinners, but we also need to know what this means. Romans 3 gave us some insight into what sin looks like in very general terms. That men have gone out of the way. That men have become unprofitable. That men's mouths are full of cursing. That men's mouths are full of bitterness. That men's feet are swift to shed blood. 
But there is no lack of clarity in the Bible as it relates to the nature of sin itself, right? We can go back to the Ten Commandments and we can rest in the Ten Commandments for this or we can go to any one of the numerous numbers of listings in 1 Corinthians or Galatians as it relates to, or, or Revelation, as it relates to the types of sins that reflect upon man as sin. If you've ever placed anything above God in priority, you are guilty of idolatry and you're a sinner. If you have ever claimed God's name falsely, you are guilty of blasphemy and you are a sinner. If you have ever disobeyed your parents, you are guilty of dishonoring your parents and you are a sinner. If you have ever borne false witness, if you have ever lied, you are a liar, you are a sinner. If you have ever taken something that doesn't belong to you, then you are guilty of stealing, you are a sinner. And interpreted through the lens of Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount... If you've ever, even if you've ever lusted after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery with her already. If you've ever hated a brother in your heart, you have, you, you, you are guilty of the same, the same inner hatred, the same inner heart, uh, heart disposition as a murderer. You have murdered him in your heart already. So all men are sinners. And this sin has a consequence. Bringing us to our second point. Sin separates man from God. So Romans 3.23 does not just tell us that all have sinned. Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned and all thus have come short of the glory of God. Sin has caused us to fall short. To fall short, Paul says here, of God's glory. God is holy. A holy God cannot have fellowship with that which is unholy. If you are a sinner, then you have sinned. And as you are a sinner, you have fallen short of God's glory. Therefore, you are not holy. If we put it into the language of what we've been learning about in 1 John, God is light and in him is no darkness. And if we have in ourselves any darkness, then we are not able to fellowship with light. Because the light cannot fellowship with darkness. Right? That's what we've seen. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Interesting. Well, not there yet. Interestingly enough. Go back. Thank you. Interestingly enough, we have made a careful point of emphasizing that 1 John is not written to or about unbelievers. This is, uh, and so we are not just talking when we talk about darkness and light about the unbeliever and his state before God, but when the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and then as we go to Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, we recognize that this is true unto, uh, as, as believers as also unto unbelievers, that sin separates us from God, that God cannot have direct fellowship with that which is unholy, so that if we walk in darkness, even as those who are believers, even as those who have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ, if we walk in darkness, then we cannot say in good faith that we have fellowship with God. That doesn't mean we're not a believer. We've talked about that quite a bit. 
But it does mean that we are not walking in step with the Lord. We're not walking in His Spirit. Thus, we will not be bearing the fruit of the Spirit. We're not abiding in Christ. Thus, we will not be uh, living out of the abundance of the uh, spiritual uh, nutrients or the spiritual empowerment of, of the Spirit of God in our lives because we have disconnected ourselves from the vine. Now, for the believer, we have the choice. John says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we have the choice of confessing our sin and stepping out of darkness back into light through fellowship in that way. We have the choice of walking in the darkness or the light because we are children of light. So Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Those who are the children of light aren't necessarily going to walk in the light. They're supposed to walk in the light. They're called to walk in the light. But Ephesians 5 verse 8 would not need to be in our Bibles if it was possible for a, if it was impossible for a child of light to walk in darkness. But it is possible for a child of light to walk in darkness, which is why we have to be exhorted to walk as children of light, which is why in 1 John we have to be exhorted as those who are children of light to not walk in darkness, but to walk in the light that gives us fellowship one with another. So notice something else, though. The distinction that Paul also makes here in this verse, Ephesians 5, 8, is that those who are not children of light are darkness. Now notice here that Paul does not say ye were sometimes in darkness, does he? He says instead ye were sometimes darkness. The unbeliever does not just walk in darkness. A child of light can walk in darkness. An unbeliever is walking in darkness, but it is not just that he walks in darkness. The unbeliever is Darkness. There is no light in him, which means the unbeliever is separated from God by nature because he walks in darkness, but also because he is darkness. And this is important to understand. Humans are not sinners because they sin. Humans sin because they are sinners. Think through the distinction with me. Humans are not sinners because they sin. Humans sin because they are sinners. And this is an important distinction to make. There is something inside of me that is broken from birth. There is something separated from God from the beginning. It is not just that I am a sinner because I've chosen to do sinful things. The things that I have chosen to do, the reality of the choice that I make to do sinful things is indicative of the fact that there's something broken inside of me. I did not break something inside of me because I chose to sin. That's this distinction. The sins that an unbeliever commits are not in and of themselves actually the problem. The sins that, well, not even just unbeliever, the sins that any of us commit are not the problem themselves. They are symptoms of the problem. And I've given that illustration before, right? That if you have a fever and you, are, you, you take your temperature and your fever is whatever, 101.2, right? And you've got this fever, if you are self-aware, you recognize that that fever is a symptom of a deeper problem, right? 
And that deeper problem is most likely either viral, a virus of some sort, or it's some infection, right? And you have some infection that needs to be taken care of. And so your body is actually raising its temperature in order to stop the replication of the virus or whatever it might be so that you can beat it off, so that your body's natural immune system can, can get the upper hand and, and can take care of it. Now, you can treat the fever. You can take a Tylenol, an ibuprofen, an Advil, whatever, and those fever reducers will, will, whatever they do, right, stop the thing in your brain that tell, is telling your body to up its body temperature, and your body temperature will go back down to normal. But you cannot take that medication, take your temperature, realize you're back at 98.6, and say, oh, good, I am now healed. Because the fever was not the problem. The fever was a symptom of the problem. And until the problem goes away, until the virus is taken care of, until the infection is cleaned out, whatever it might be, until the problem is taken care of, the fever is just going to keep coming back. That is sin. We have something inside of us. We have a sickness inside of us as, as humans. And the sin that comes out of us is a symptom of the sickness that is inside of us. A man, thus, can clean his actions. He can clean up the externals in his life. He can take that spiritual Tylenol. He can discipline himself in such a way so that he's able to not manifest the darker natures of his spiritual condition. But if he does not get the inside fixed, all he's doing is taking a spiritual Tylenol. And at some point, in some way, in some shape, in some form, those things are, are, are going to come out. And if they're not coming out in his actions, they are bottling him up on the inside and making him a mess on the inside because the sickness is there and it is going to be there. You can't just fix it by changing your externalities. If I want to fix the problem of my heart, I can't just paint over the rust. I have to remove the rust. Except the problem is I can't remove the rust. Right? Because I'm a sinner. And because I'm a sinner, I am already separated from God. And as one who is already separated from God, I've already dug myself into this hole. I'm already guilty. There's nothing I can do about that. I need a change from the inside out. I need forgiveness from the, from the bottom up. I need the whole thing undone and redone for me. So we have these two issues at hand as it relates to man's sin. One issue is that I manifest sinful deeds. But that is actually not the biggest issue. The biggest issue is that those sinful deeds are coming from somewhere, which means there's something deeper in me that is sinful. And this brings us to our third point. God loves the world. Why didn't God destroy humanity when Adam chose to rebel against him as we've been studying in Genesis? Well, because God loves the world. Why didn't God just let the whole human race disappear in the days of Noah and the flood? I mean, he saved eight persons. Would have just eight fewer people, no boat, done. No more, no more grief, no more problems, no more issues. Why? Because God loves the world. Why are you and I still here? 
because God loves the world. Notice what the Bible says in Matthew 5, verses 44 and 45. Jesus said, I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them which hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. As Jesus is compelling his followers to love their enemies, and the idea here of loving your enemies is not that you have in your heart this list of people that you despise that are your enemies and you need to love them anyway, that's kind of incongruent. The idea is love those who have made themselves your enemies, right? Love those who have set themselves against righteousness. Love those who have set themselves against you. And as Jesus compels them to do this, he does so on this foundation. Love your enemies because God did it first. That every day God expresses his love to the world in which the vast majority of men and women shake their fist at his character and even for many at his very existence. And yet every day among all of those who are unbelievers, all of those who have rejected him, he makes his son to rise upon them and he sends rain to water their, their earth, right? The earth of the just and the unjust. And of course, Jesus' point here is that we would do the same as believers. But consider with me what the Bible is revealing here about God. Every sunrise is a testimony of the fact that regardless of what you think of God, God loves you. That's, That's what every sunrise testifies. Every rainstorm, every rain shower is a testimony of the fact that regardless of what you think of God, God loves you. But there is a far more compelling testimony of God's love for you than that he makes the sun to rise upon the evil and on the good and he makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Because not only has God shown his love for the evil and the good, for the just and the unjust through this common grace that is life that he sustains, But he has also shown his love for the evil and for the good, for the just and the unjust, in that he sent his son to die on the cross for them. And that is our fourth point. God sent his son to pay for your sin. So we have the well-known declaration of God's love from the mouth of Jesus here in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God came to earth. He took on flesh. He was born of a woman. Importantly, he was born of a virgin, conceived not of a human father who bears the legacy of the sin nature that each of us has. So Jesus was not born with the same sickness that we have within ourselves, whereby we are inevitably prone unto sin because of this separation from God into which we are born in through the the reality of the curse upon humanity, the separation of humanity from God. He was conceived of the Holy Ghost and so free from that sin nature, free from that natural separation, born in fellowship with God, born in that place of of light rather than darkness. Jesus then submitted himself 
to the world as humans experience it. He lived the life of a man. He understood poverty. He understood fatigue. He understood sorrow. He did not live the life of a king. He did not live the life of the lavish. He hungered. He thirsted. He became weary. He was rejected. He was mocked. He was tempted in all points like as we. And yet without sin. Never once did he succumb to the temptation of the world, the flesh, or the devil. But this perfect man, this man who was not separated from God, who had never been separated from God, who was not darkness as the unbeliever is darkness, not just did he not walk in darkness, not just was he not in darkness, but he was not darkness. He had never walked in darkness. And this man in love submitted himself to the wrath of God for sin. He became darkness. He took upon himself darkness so that you and I could become those children of light. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ became sin. We were sin. We were born in sin. We lived in sin. Sin was not just what we did. Sin was our very definition. And I say was, assuming that my listeners are believers. If you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior tonight, you are sin. You are still sin. You are in that darkness. You are darkness. You are separated from God because you are a sinner. And you know that you're a sinner because you sin. But your sin is simply a manifestation of the deeper problem within you that is that you are a sinner. You are separated from God. There's something broken inside of you that only God can fix. And Jesus Christ is that fix. So Jesus became our darkness and God poured his wrath for that darkness Upon Jesus. So Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. That every sin you have ever committed, every sin you will ever commit, was laid on Jesus Christ on that day. That every sin... And notice it says here, the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. An interesting statement that's going to bring us back in a moment to 1 John 2, 2. So Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. The Bible says that three days later, three days in a tomb, Afterwards, Jesus rose again from the dead in victory over death and victory over sin. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead reflects the Father's stamp of approval upon the sacrifice of the Son. Certainly, there's any number of reasons why we might believe that Jesus was a fraud, that Jesus was a hugster. But the one thing that absolutely guarantees that he was not a fraud, absolutely guarantees that he was not a huckster. It was not even necessarily the fact that he, that, that he, he walked on water or that he made the blind to see. Uh, there are any number of, of ways that we could try to rationalize those things. But do you know what we cannot rationalize? That the creator God would allow a false prophet to rise from the dead when that false prophet says rising from the dead will be the proof that I am true. The creator God would never allow that to happen. The fact that God raised him from the dead is proof positive that the God, creator God, the God in heaven's father, 
the, 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 the great father, Jehovah God, that he approved of the message of the son because he raised him from the dead. The father rose Jesus from the dead, 100% assurance that the father accepted Jesus' sacrifice for sin, giving us assurance then that our sins are forgiven and that we can, in fact, be made righteous. We'll come back to that in a moment. And here's where we come back to 1 John 2, 2. There's a question that has been left unanswered in our contemplation of Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus died for our sins. And as we've just considered here in Isaiah 53, 6, the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Who is us? Whose sins did Jesus pay for on the cross? Whose sins have been forgiven? And this is where 1 John 2, 2 comes in, where we read again. And he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We talked last time about the idea of Jesus as the propitiation. That word means an appeasement. A satisfaction of God's wrath against sin. It's interesting. When I look this up again in the Strong's, it doesn't say an appeasement. It says a method of appeasement. And I thought that was interesting because as the King James presents it, he is the propitiation for our sins, right? But if we say he is a me- the method of propitiation for our sins, it dramatically changes the meaning. And so I said, wow, well, maybe I've been wrong about this as I've been preaching it over the years, uh, relying upon this. Have I never looked this up before? Uh, and, and so I went and I did a little bit of digging and I went into how, where this word is used because it's a fairly rare word. And as I dug into um, going into the classical Greek and all of those resources at my disposal, um, no, it's, it's, it's a propitiation, not a means of. He is the propitiation for our sins. It's not that he made provision for that propitiation. He is the propitiation. There's a big difference there. And this is a difference which our circles do not necessarily distinguish. Many within our circles will say, well, Jesus was made. There, Jesus uh, was a, a means by which... He, he set the groundwork so that, that there could be a propitiation for sins. Jesus laid the groundwork. A, he was a means of propitiation. He became a means of propitiation so that anybody who comes unto him would then receive propitiation for their sins. But that's not what the text says. The text does not say that Jesus laid the groundwork so that anybody who comes unto him might, might, see, might receive Jesus as a propitiation. The text says Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, and then not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Consider the dramatic implications of this truth, if I'm right. Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. God placed the sins of every man, woman, and child on him. Jesus' sacrifice did not just make it possible for people to be forgiven of their sins. Jesus' sacrifice paid for every sin excuse me, did not make it possible for, every, for, for, for people's sins to be paid. Jesus paid for every sin which has and will ever be committed. And this is a startling truth, that the sins of the world were paid for in Christ. And you say, well, pastor, here's the problem with that truth. Here's why we don't say that. Here's why we say that Jesus laid the groundwork, what, that, that Jesus 
that Jesus purchased it for all men, but only, oh, the only thing that he purchased was the potential for all men to be forgiven, the potential for, our, for his sins to be forgiven. And the reason why is because if we say Jesus paid for all sin, that all men's sins are forgiven, then we have to say that everybody goes to heaven. Then all of a sudden we're universalists. If Jesus paid for every single sin, then how is it possible that anyone goes to hell? So don't we have to say that Jesus simply uh, pr provided the provision for men's sins to be paid for, the provision for men's sins to be propitiated? And I contend, no. Let's explore why. In John chapter 5, verses 19 through 23, Jesus said this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. For as the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. So Jesus tells his listeners here that God had chosen to pass no judgment himself upon man, but rather that he had committed all judgment to the Son. The Son says, I can do nothing except what my Father has done, as my Father has raised men from the grave, so too he has given me the authority to do so, and then he has passed all judgment from himself to the Son, to me. Think about that with me. Think about it in terms of, of, of a, a, the modern concept of debt, right? It's actually a little bit easier if we would think of like the Charles Dickens era concept of debt, but we can use our modern sensibility and it'll work uh, just fine as well. Not as good, but just fine. So uh, think about how a mortgage works, right? You owe a lender a debt, and they are collecting on that debt. And at some point or another, and this happens all the time if you've had any mortgages, right? At some time or another, especially if you've been in some broader system of larger banks or whatever the case may be, some company comes along and buys that debt from the lender. So the lender sells that debt to someone else. The lender gets their money from that person. And now your debt has transferred from company A to company B. At that moment, you, have, you and company A are settled. The debt between you and company A is done because company B came in and bought your debt from company A, gave company A everything they, everything they were expecting, everything that they wanted for, for the, the, the debt that you owed. And now company B picks up. So company B sends you a letter and company A sends you a letter. And company A says we sold your debt. And company B says we now own your debt. And now you're going to make your checks payable to our company. It's the same terms and everything by law in our, in our country and everything, right? But now you are going to be pay, you know, writing your checks not to that company anymore. Now you're going to be writing your checks to our company. The debt is settled and paid for with company A. Now you owe that debt to company B. Now, translate that into what Jesus is saying in John 5. You and I owed a debt to the Father. That debt to the Father was a sin debt because the Father is righteous. And that righteous Father demands righteousness. God is light and in Him is no darkness. That debt was a sin debt. 
And the father's terms were absolute. That's what the Old Testament tells us. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Those are the father's terms. And so all throughout the Old Testament, men would read the, the, those, those Old Testament principles found in the law, and they'd say, wow, I'm in trouble. Because I can't do that. You can't do that. I can't do that. We can't be holy. As a matter of fact, before we have even learned enough to truly know what the Bible is telling us, we have already breached that principle so many times. We're already so deep into that debt that we can't even pay off the interest on it, much less pay the debt. And you can't pay off my debt because you have your own, and I can't pay off your debt because I have my own. But Jesus had no debt. And he came, and in John chapter 5, he said, God hath taken all judgment and given it to the Father, hath taken all of that judgment and given it to the Son. God transferred that debt, if you will, to his Son. The Son paid the debt. That's what happened on the cross. What happened on the cross is Jesus paid the debt. The Father took all of his wrath and all of his anger against sin and against that separation and against that darkness, and he poured it out on Jesus. And now Jesus, if you will, owns that debt. He purchased it with his blood, not just the debt of those who are believers. He purchased the debt of every man, every woman, every child. He is the propitiation for our sins, the appeasement before the Father, and not ours only, but also the sin of the whole world. That's what the Bible says. So now the Son holds the debt. And since all judgment has been given to the Son, then the Son has the right to dispose of that debt as he will. Now that's where the mortgage idea breaks down, right? Because in, in, in the modern system, the lender is bound by the same terms of the agreement that you made originally. But if you go back to Dickens' day, that's not how it was, right? If you read any of, of those books, when somebody buys your debt, they get to decide when you pay off that debt. They get to decide the terms. And you just hope that the person buying up, uh, buying up that debt is as understanding or merciful or willing to abide by the terms before, whatever it might be. Because he gets to determine the terms of that debt. And according to God's will, the conditions of this debt before the world is now this. That now that the Father has transferred the debt to the Son... The son is submitting himself to the will of the father as it relates to this debt. And the will of the debt is this. Honor the son. And if you honor the son, he that honors the son is honoring the father. So what does it mean then to honor the son? That is the condition by which the debt is now expunged before the Son. The debt was already expunged before the Father. The Father has forgiven the sin, transferred judgment to the Son. Now the Son has the right to dispose of our debt according to His conditions, according to His will. And His will, submitted to the Father, is this. Honor the Son. So John 3.16 tells us what it means to honor the Son. The second half. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That is the debt transference that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 
To honor the Son is to believe in His name. To honor the Son is to accept what we have seen in, these, in, in this gospel presentation. That you are a sinner. That you cannot save yourself. That you need God to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. That Jesus died on the cross. That He was buried. That He rose again the third day. And that He did it for your sin. And when you accept that gift, what you are doing is you are saying to the Son, the Son is righteous and I am unrighteous. And as you as you proclaim the righteousness of the Son on your behalf, as you proclaim the reality that you cannot do this thing for yourself, but that the Son is righteous and has done it for you, as you take up that cross, as you follow Him in that way, the Bible says that that gift is to honor the Son. And that through that, all of the blessings of what Jesus purchased on the cross are then afforded to that one. That Jesus Christ, who holds that debt now, now judicially forgives that debt before that one who will come unto him. And the Father honors that in the name of the Son. So that the true condition then, for which men rest under condemnation, is not the sins that they commit. It's not the fact that you lied today. It's not the fact that, that you lusted this week. The condition for which men rest under condemnation is that you have not believed in the name of, of, of the only begotten Son of God. Now, will there be judgment for those sins, for that lie, for that lust? Well, yes, there will. That's coming. That, that, that will be for believer and unbeliever alike. But heaven and hell depends upon one thing and one thing alone. Whether a man has believed on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. And as we've said, belief does not just mean mental assent. Belief means that I have recognized who I am in light of who God is and I have accepted it for myself. No plan B. And that brings us to our final point. The basis for condemnation is unbelief, not sin. The sin of unbelief, if you will. We can say that sin, but not the sins we commit. The sin of every man who has ever sinned was born by Jesus Christ on the cross. And as I said already, there's coming a day when men will answer for their sin. The sins they commit. The Bible says this plainly, but this is not just an unbeliever thing. Paul makes this very clear in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body according to that which he hath done, whether it be good or whether, or excuse me, whether it be good or bad. You and I will answer for the things done in our body as much as any other person. And we see how this plays out when we get to Revelation chapter 20. Beginning in verse 12, the Bible says this. John writing, and this is another book from John, right? And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. So at this point, we have everyone, all of the dead, being judged according to their works that were written in the books, right? 
And then verse 14, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. But where does that second death come from? And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So we have here in Revelation 20, the books, and then another book, which is the book of life. The dead, small and great, talking about the righteous dead here likely, because then we have death and hell spit out their dead in a minute. The dead, small and great, are judged out of the things written in the books. And then the sea gives up her dead. And if we uh, understand prophecy, the sea is usually the Gentile world. So we might even understand this to be first the Old Testament saints. And then the sea gives up her dead, the Gentile world. And they were judged out of the things that are written in the books. And verse 12 says that they, these things are the things that are according to their works, which 2 Corinthians 5.10 said, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to answer for. This is not a judgment for heaven or hell. And we know what this is for believers. For believers, this judgment is a judgment of reward and loss. For unbelievers, the Bible is not fully clear, but at the very least, we might understand this to be a time where God points to all of these things and says, these are the things that condemn you. These are the things that speak against you. These are the things that show that you are indeed unrighteous before the Father. But then we come to verses 14 and 15 where the Bible says that death and hell are cast in the lake of fire. Death and hell being the place where unbelievers reside at this point until the time where they are judged. Verse, 12, verse 14, excuse me, calls this the second death. And verse 15 says quite plainly, whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. That it is the book of life that is the thing that determines who goes into the lake of fire and who does not. The condition for the lake of fire was not, in, it's not said here to be the books. It's said here to be the book of life. And this is what Jesus taught throughout his ministry, that the condition by which a man upon this earth, any man is condemned, is that he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. His sins were paid for on Calvary. They were transferred. They were, Jesus was punished for those sins. That debt was transferred to the Son. And the Son has now set the conditions where, whereby that debt would be fully expunged. And th that condition is that they believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is what John 3.18 says. I've kind of quoted it in part. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Continues in verse 19. And this is the condemnation. Notice what he says the condemnation is. That light is come into this world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Notice what this is saying. The condemnation is that light came into the world and men loved darkness rather than light. That's the condemnation. Now, what is the reason why they love darkness rather than light? That's where their sins come in. Because their deeds were evil. Because they were doing evil deeds. Because they were doing these things that are sinful. And they loved their sin. And so when they saw the light, they refused to come to the light because their deeds were evil. But what is the condemnation? It is not intrinsically that their deeds are evil. It is that they won't come to the light. It is that they loved their darkness. The testimony of 1 John 2.2 2 states in no uncertain terms 
that which Jesus also said quite plainly. But it's still somewhat easy to miss. That the payment of Jesus Christ on the cross was sufficient to pay for the sin of the whole world. Every person who has ever lived. And we'll talk more about that again in our considerations next week. But also, the payment of Jesus Christ on the cross was sufficient to pay for every sin of the whole world. Demanding that the standard for heaven and hell is not anything that we do or don't do per se, except that we have either believed or not believed in the name of Jesus Christ. It's nothing that we could do or could not do. It is how we dispose ourselves to Christ. And let me spend the last little bit of our time together discussing why this understanding, what are the benefits of this nuance of distinction? Pastor, does it really matter that much? Well, as you're sharing the gospel, in a sense, no. You're not going to get into all of the nitty-gritty. This is almost like a gospel presentation for saved people. Uh, You're not going to get into the nitty-gritty of this with the unbeliever. The unbeliever needs to understand the five points that I gave there, right? That... That, that, that you're a sinner, that your sin is separated from you from God, that God loves the world, that he sent Jesus to die on the cross, and that you need to believe on him to be saved. But what does this, this nuance of distinction and understanding afford to us as those who are understanding the gospel on, on these terms? Well, understanding this can change the way that we as believers understand many things about our life in Christ. It explains how Jesus could simultaneously be the propitiation for the sins of the whole world and still condemn the world, the unbelieving world, to eternal judgment. Which means we don't have to faction off Jesus to only paying for a subset of the population or his blood only being, uh, uh, only being uh, 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 efficacious for a certain subset of the population. Nor does it restrict the ability for us to say unequivocally how much God loves the world. Because God loved the world so much that he gave his son for every man, woman, and child. And we can say that unequivocally because we know that Jesus paid for all of their sin, whether they will accept it or not. It properly refutes those who would try to argue that men can graduate out of judgment through enough years of burning off their impurities, purgatory. The idea of purgatory is actually a way to try to reconcile that thing that I've spent a lot of time trying to reconcile behind this pulpit, which is how can there be judgment for works? While simul- how can there be a day where we will stand before a judge and answer for our works if we're believers and we're going to go to heaven anyway? Purgatory was the Catholic answer to that idea. But you know what it's become instead? What it's become instead is the idea that, well, pretty much everyone's going to make it because Jesus loves the world. But then we have all of these impurities that we have to burn off because we have to be accepted on the standard of our works. No, we don't. Jesus took all of that on the cross. He took all of our sin on the cross. That is not the condition for heaven. The condition for heaven is not our righteousness. The condition for heaven is Jesus's righteousness. And this doctrinal distinction makes that 100% clear. Blurs no lines of distinction as it relates to such things. It explains how Jesus' blood could be shed for the lost without being wasted. I said that already. It highlights the reality of grace and magnifies the truth that the redeemed will have no basis for which to boast. Have you ever thought about that? Well, how is it that I'll have nothing to boast? I mean, after all, I 
did this or I did that or I noticed this or I acknowledged that or at least I came. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to look at myself in some way, shape or form. Well, no, because Jesus didn't just pay for your sins. You, were, you did not receive for forgiveness uniquely. Jesus paid for all sin. You simply received it. And it even establishes the deepest foundations for the argument of eternal security. For if indeed salvation is this way, truly by grace alone, absolutely no merit, no, not, nothing that, that even could be done, the idea of me doing anything factors so little into the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ that Jesus has already paid for the sins of those who will go to their grave shaking their fist at him. So it, it clearly has nothing to do with me. It clearly has nothing to do with my merit because it's not as if Jesus even died only to, to apply that forgiveness to, to those who have enough merit, who do something. No, it's applied to everyone as it relates to his death. It's simply not given to everyone until they ask for it. And if that is true, then the claim that I could somehow lose it or fall short of it is absolutely nonsensical. The testimony of 1 John 2, 2 states in no uncertain terms that which Jesus also said. These truths can not only change the way that I live as a Christian, it can also change the way that I evangelize. Now, I said already, you're not necessarily going to give all of this to someone who's not in Christ. But, you know, many believe feel tremendous guilt over the amount that they evangelize, and more specifically, tremendous pressure regarding how to evangelize. Many believers suffer under the guilt of not knowing enough or not having convincing arguments to prove that people are sinful enough or that they need to be saved. They feel as though it is their job to be compelling and so to win people to Christ in that way. And to be clear, there's nothing wrong with being compelling. There's nothing wrong with having good arguments. There's nothing wrong with knowing what you believe and being able to articulate it. But when we build our understanding of evangelism upon a proper understanding of Christ's sacrifice, we are reminded that the condition for heaven and hell is belief on Christ alone. This simplifies the message. I don't have to try to work through a jumble of, of salvation catchphrases, of asking Jesus into your heart, or repenting of your sins and believing, or of, uh, con of, 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 of confessing with your mouth, and all of these different ideas, and trying to work through all of these different concepts as it relates to the nature of receiving this idea. The message is simple, and it is the best of news. Jesus has already done the work, your sin is paid for, and it is for you to receive the gift. This is the message that you can give just as easily as I can give. The work is done. Jesus has finished it. It is simply for you to receive it. It doesn't have to be any more technical than that because Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Furthermore, it strongly rebuts the argument that all roads lead to heaven, doesn't it? We said, well, how is it possible if Jesus paid for the sins of the whole world that everyone doesn't get to heaven? Well, we answered that question because judgment has now been committed to the Son and the Son requires this one thing. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. 
Jesus is and indeed must be by design the only way because his atonement is the only atonement. The all of judgment has been passed to the son, which means Muhammad has no authority to judge, which means the Buddha has no authority to judge, which means the Dalai Lama has no authority to judge because all of the judgment has been passed. The authority for judgment has been passed from the father to the son. The Pope has no authority to judge. A priest has no authority to judge because judgment has been passed to the Son. And so all roads do not lead to heaven. Christ alone leads to heaven because Christ alone is the standard. And of course, these truths can also change the way we live as believers. So it changes the way we see this whole thing, changes the way we tell others about these things, it changes the way we live. We talked a couple of weeks ago that many believers struggle with feeling released from their sins when they confess them. I was one of those for a long time. They know that they're forgiven, but they still rest under the guilt and the condemnation of their sinful tendencies and deficiencies. Paul tells us, however, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. It may be that the reason why you as a believer still rest under self-condemnation for your sinful choices, even after you confess them, is because you have a misunderstanding of the nature of what Christ did on the cross. If Jesus atoned for every sin past, present, and future of every man on the cross and the wrath of God was fully, utterly, and completely satisfied if the debt was wholeheartedly transferred over and completely transferred over from the Father to the Son so that there is nothing between me and the Father as I come through the Son completely satisfied on the cross Jesus' wrath, God, excuse me, the Father's wrath does not rest on you. What would then hinder in any way, shape, or form when you come to the Father in the name of the Son, Him to wash it away? See, it's already been paid. The debt is already paid. You don't have to rest under condemnation if the debt is already paid. If Jesus took it all. So the Father's wrath has been assuaged. And we know upon whom Jesus' wrath falls on. Those who have not honored the Son, who have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So at the moment of salvation, the great judge of all the earth becomes the one who calls us his friend. That's what Jesus said. I call you my friends. Ye are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. And the Father who committed all judgment into our friend's hands is indeed called our Father. So that you have a friend who mediates between you and your Father. And both of those terms given to us in God's Word through the teachings of Jesus Christ are expressing the fact that Christ paid that debt and so as you come to the Father, you come to your Father. 
and you come in the name of the one who is your friend. And so God is not an angry God looking down at you because you failed again. Jesus took that on the cross. And finally, these truths help us reject judgmentalism in our lives and magnify grace in our lives toward others. We're reminded by the condition of belief alone that eternal life and eternal judgment are not constructed on the basis of moral aptitude. Just as no man will be in heaven for his own righteousness, the lake of fire is not about evil men. It's about rejection of Christ. Now, there are some times where in our state of discouragement, the the thought of evil men in the lake of fire is somewhat of a consolation to us. But do you know what the grace of Jesus Christ does for us? When we understand this truth in the gospel property, properly, is it causes us to think instead of that evil man and to say, would that he would come to Christ rather than would that I could watch him burn in the flames? Will evil men be in the lake of fire? Absolutely. But will many moral men, men that the world would not call evil, maybe men that we read about in our history books that we would venerate as great leaders, As men who did great things for this world, will many of them be in the lake of fire as well? They will. Because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. When we look at the unbelieving world, we're tempted to resent them for their sinfulness, especially for those who have not come out of sin, second, third generation believers, those whom your parents have have protected and raised well. We remember, however that we too are sinful, and that the only thing standing between us and the death that we deserve, it's not our moral aptitude, it's not the things that we have figured out, it is Jesus Christ and His grace alone. And that this grace is extended to everyone else as well because Jesus paid for all of those sins. 1 Timothy 2 tells us that Jesus will have all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. It's an unfortunate reality in the heart of men that we comfort ourselves in the trouble and tribulation that we have by, by thinking about others in the lake of fire. But God help us that we would instead say, would that those would be saved. Because the evil of those men were, was poured out on Christ. Our Savior was stricken for their misdeeds already. To this end, those evil men, should they burn in the lake of fire, will burn in the, will burn in the lake of fire for the exact same reason that any other man would burn in the lake of fire. No matter how evil, no matter how extreme their evil, because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Such a perspective is able to melt a heart of stone and give us the compassion necessary to obey that commission of our Lord way back in Matthew 5 that we talked about early on in our third point where God, about God loving the world. Love your enemies. How is that possible? That's possible because Jesus 
did that exact thing when he bore their sin on the cross. To this end, I consider 1 John 2, 2 to be one of those foundational verses in our Bibles. Because it clarifies for us something which, yes, Jesus said it. Jesus said it in John 3.18. Jesus said it in John 3.19. But it brings solidity to this concept that when Jesus died on the cross, he died to take the sins of the entire world. Every man, every woman, every child, past, present, and future upon himself, expressing the absolute and the utmost of love, giving us the ability through that to understand and relate ourselves properly to Christ, to relate ourselves properly to evangelism, to understand how it is that we live this Christian life, and even to bring us to that place of grace in our own lives so that we can love our enemies as Christ did his unlocking our understanding of the other things which Christ taught us in his word so that we may follow Christ and as Paul exhorted in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 8, walk as children of light. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.